I'm grateful that you're here. Thank you for coming and making it a priority to worship together this morning. It's a good, good crowd I see today. We are going to jump right in this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are going through our series. And I told you last week we're going to take our time this morning. We're not even going to look at a whole verse this morning. Okay, so are you ready? We are going to uh, dive right into this description of love that Paul gives us, beginning in verse 4. Now, last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we said that what was happening in the church in Corinth was the believers had all of the manifestations of all the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives believers and empowers them to serve each other with, but they had gotten a little backwards with it. They had forgotten that the purpose of the gifts was to serve others, to serve each other, not to edify and lift up themselves. They had gotten it backwards. And so Paul, in, in this letter to the church between chapters 12 and chapters 14, where he talks about how to use and how to implement these gifts, he decides to write chapter 13 right in the middle to explain that everything that we do has to be centered around love. And I'll remind you of a point that we made last week. Nothing we do for Jesus will matter to anyone, including Jesus, unless love takes first place. Love matters most. That's what verses 1 through 3 can be summed up to say. Paul says it doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter what abilities you have. It doesn't matter how righteous or holy your deeds seem to appear. If they're not motivated by real agape love, they're useless. So he begins now in verse 4 to describe in detail, almost like an artist who is painting a picture of what love is. And he begins stroke by stroke to paint this picture of love. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like an artist who sits at an easel and begins to paint a picture, and he has a subject that he's looking at. You realize that the subject that Paul is gazing his eyes on as he paints this picture of love is Jesus. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the thing that he's looking at as he strokes and paints this picture and defines love for us. So he's going to begin to tell us things that love is and things that love is not. And there's a real important thing that we need to understand before we start jumping into to these descriptions of love. Something about the language that's really important. When we read 1 Corinthians 13 in English, the words that we see that Paul uses to describe love, we usually categorize these as adjectives. But in the original language, in the Greek text, every one of these words that describe love are not adjectives, they're verbs. They're all verbs in the Greek. And so that tells us something very, very important. Agape is not a love that feels, it's a love that does. It's active. Every one of these things... They're not feelings. 
And that's where we get mixed up. We, we tend to think that we're on target with these if we feel these emotions. And Paul says love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not something that just has all the feels, as some would say today. It is action. It is doing. So this is the challenge as we walk through these next few verses. This chapter is not going to challenge us to change the way we feel about each other. It's going to call us to evaluate what we actively do in one another's lives. And there's a big difference. We can feel one way about one another. We can feel one way about our church family. But that's not what any of this is talking about. What, is, what do we do? How does our love do in the midst of our relationships? So we're going to begin with verse 4. And we're only going to look at this morning those first two. Because these first two are very important. Verse 4 of chapter 13. Very simply put. Paul says love is patient. And love is kind. Now, I want you to notice, if you look down through verses 4 and 5, these are the only two positive descriptors of what love is. Paul says love is patient, love is kind, and then the rest of the list are all negative descriptors. What love is not. Okay? So we're going to begin, it's, it's patience and kindness are two things that we tend to relate to as feelings. We think of them as adjectives that usually describe our emotional response to a situation, to a circumstance. But when Paul says it, he's describing both of these things as actions. Okay? So... We're going to kind of change our paradigm, change the way we think. So let's look at the very first one. Love is patient. Now, when we hear the word patience, we usually think that patience is all about waiting, right? Like maybe, husbands, you were waiting for your wives to get ready this morning to leave for church. You were trying to be patient, right? Uh, maybe it's patience as when you go through the fast food line and you get to the window and you can tell by the look on the, on the, the person's face in the window what they're about to say. It's going to be a few more minutes on your food. Can you just pull up a little bit? Can you just pull up a little farther and we'll bring it out to you? Or if you're at the crystal, they just tell you to park. Because it's going to be a little longer if you go to crystal. Just saying. Or maybe it's dinner time, food is on the table, and you call to your kids and you are patiently waiting for them to put their video games down and actually come sit down at the dinner table to eat. We in Lindale know what waiting is all about because we have our blessed trains, don't we? We know what it's like. We exhibit patience, or maybe we don't, uh, when the train comes by. When we're late for work, we're late for school. Late for church, have to wait on those trains. And then we all know what it feels like to wait 
for the pastor to get to the end of his sermon. <laughs> patience, right? We think that patience has everything to do with learning how to wait. But this is actually not the kind of patience that Paul is talking about here. The word we translate patient there in English in the original language literally means long-tempered or long-suffering. It's a common word throughout the New Testament and in almost every instance in the New Testament where this word, this verb is used, it's used in regards to people. Not events, not circumstances, not situations. It's an active verb that has to do with the way we relate to people. The patience of agape is the ability to be inconvenienced and taken advantage of over and over and over and over again by another person without growing upset and without growing angry. And this is difficult for us because we live in a world and a culture that rewards retaliation. When someone does something to hurt you, when somebody does something to disrespect you, it's expected that you have something to say back. It's expected that you do something back to them. And if you don't, you're often considered to be weak if you don't retaliate. It's like that in this culture, but it was also like that in the first century. Greek culture regarded patience in, in the same way. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, actually taught that vengeance was a virtue rather than patience. It was then and it still is an expectation for you to fight back when a person or a movement comes against you. But agape, the love that comes from God, is very much the opposite of this idea. Love's primary concern, we said last week, is others. Agape's primary concern is on others, not on self. So self-preservation is not something that agape holds in very high regard. Love does not avenge. Love does not retaliate. Here's what love does. You can remember this. Love endures more than it deserves for longer than it should because it hopes for what is yet to come. It endures more than it deserves for longer than it should. We all understand what it's like to suffer. We all understand what it's like to be hurt by people. But agape doesn't just suffer, but it suffers long. The love of God suffers long, and you can think of it this way. The love of God has a really, really, really long fuse. As where maybe for some of us, our fuses are very short. 
An example of this in the scriptures is Stephen. Stephen was one of the first seven deacons to be called out by the church in Jerusalem. And, and Stephen preached. He preached boldly to the Sanhedrin. And after he was falsely accused, as he stood before the Sanhedrin, he saw the glory of Jesus. And as he exclaimed what he saw, it riled up such anger in the ones who opposed him that they dragged him out of the city to stone him. And listen to what happens in Acts chapter 7 as they're dragging Stephen out. I want you to catch Stephen's heart in verse 59. While they were stoning him, think about that. He, he is, has boulders and big rocks being pummeled at him. And in the moments, for the purpose to kill him, they weren't going to stop until he was dead. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then look at verse 60. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is patient agape. The willingness to endure the attack of enemies without any anger or vengeance. But instead asking for the mercy of God on their lives. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? Patient. That's the exact same word that's in 1 Corinthians 13.4. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There was a man named Robert Ingersoll who was a prominent agnostic in the 19th century. And it, it, and it said that during his lectures, he would say, quote, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I've said. And he would continue with his lectures. And after that time had passed and he was still standing on the platform, he would use that as an argument to argue against the existence of God. But he had a contemporary, a minister named Theodore Parker, who had a rebuttal for Ingersoll, and he said, did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? The word patient in 2 Peter is the same word that's in 1 Corinthians 13. God has suffered the rejection of the world and continues to do so because of agape. Because this is the thing. With every moment that God endures the rejection of the world, with every moment that he endures, there's another moment for repentance. With every moment that he endures... He provides another opportunity for people to repent. Look at Luke 23. This is perhaps probably the greatest example of 
patient love. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And then notice verse 35. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saves others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah. The chosen one. In verse 34 there, we see the patient love of agape in action on the cross. The suffering of the abuse and rejection of those that Jesus came to save. With not one ounce of hate, not one ounce of vengeance in Jesus' heart. Nothing but mercy. But then do you notice in verse 35 the response of the people who were watching? The expectation of the world. That Greek philosophy that Aristotle taught was coming out in those moments as they stood and watched Jesus on the cross. And they didn't understand how somebody could do what he's doing. And they said, let him save himself. Aristotle says that if somebody treats you like we're treating you, you should come down and take care of us. You should come down and do something about it. Why doesn't he? Agape. How long has God endured our wrong? How long has God endured our rejection? Well, he's been enduring it since the garden. And if he is that enduring and long-suffering with us, how much more should we be patient and long-suffering in our relationships with each other? Do we really have to have such short fuses? When we look at the state of marriage in our country, do we really have to give up on our marriages so quickly? Do we really have to end friendships so easily over wrongs that are done to us? Sometimes we'll end a friendship over one wrong. And why do so many people claim they have a love for a church or a church family and at the first sign of dissatisfaction they pack their bags and leave? Enduring long-suffering. The reason we do these things is one of two reasons. Either we don't really understand patience the way Paul describes it here, or we do understand it, and we're willing to receive it from God. We're just not willing to give it to one another. So love is patient it endures it suffers long but then the patience of love has a counterpart and it's that second word love is kind and here's how you can you can put kindness in with patience here they are they're a set they go together as patient love 
is willing to endure anything. Kind love is willing to give anything. It's one thing to endure opposition. It's one thing to endure wrongs done to us. If, when people don't treat us the way we want them to treat us, it's one thing to endure those things. But it's a whole other thing to turn around in response to that and show kindness. To give back good things in response to bad things that we receive. But Paul says love is kind. That word means that it is useful. It is serving. It is gracious. It is generous. And it's not that love feels generous. It is generous. And there's a difference. Love is goodwill in action through kindness. It doesn't just desire good things for other people. It's one thing for us to look at somebody or look at a situation and go, wow, I really, I really hope good things for them. That would be the emotional response. That would be the, the feeling. But kind here is not a, not a feeling, it's an action. So love doesn't just desire good things for other people, but it gives those good things to those people. It goes out and does the work to make sure that those good things are received. Jesus, again, taught his disciples to show the kindness of agape to not only friends and family, but to the ones who we call enemies. Remember, we said before, Jesus says, if you love the ones who love you, help those who help you. What credit is that? That's not that big a deal. Sinners do that. People outside the kingdom do that. Look at Matthew 5, starting in verse 39. Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. As much as love patiently endures abuse, it also seeks to give good in return for that same abuse. And it's not spiteful kindness and we have this phrase that i've picked up on that we that we hear sometimes and it's it, there have been songs written about it about it have you ever heard the phrase well just kill them with kindness right you've heard that you may have said that before just what do you do when people are people are cruel to you oh you just kill them with kindness and I think, we, I think we've convinced ourselves that that sounds very godly. That that's a godly thing to do. That that's a Christ-like attitude to have. To kill somebody with kindness. Let me ask you something. Just think about it for a minute. Does God kill you with his kindness? Or does he 
bring you life with his kindness. When we say, I'm just going to kill him with kindness, that's really more about you than it is about the other person. That's that spiteful, there's vengeance in that attitude. I'm going to be kind to them, not because I want good things for them, but because I want to bring guilt into their life. I want to make them feel guilty for treating me bad, so I'm going to be nice to them. That is not agape. That is not what this kind of kindness is. Look at Titus chapter 3. I'm throwing lots of scriptures at you, so I hope you're at least writing down references if you want to go back and take a look at these. Titus chapter 3, in verse 3, verses 3 through 7. At one time, listen to what Paul tells Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the what? Kindness and love. That's agape again in the Greek. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If Paul told Titus that it was the kindness and love of God that was the prelude to our salvation experience, if if kindness was the prelude to us coming into a relationship with Jesus, why do we think we can bring people into the kingdom with judgment and accusation? Why is it that we have this idea that if we just tell somebody how wrong they are, they'll come to Jesus? (laughs) Now that's part of it. But again, like Paul says... It doesn't matter how eloquent a speaker you are. It doesn't matter how great a prophet spirit you have. If you do it without agape, it's noise. Nobody wants to hear it. And he also says that God didn't show us just a little bit of kindness. God didn't show us just enough kindness. Don't we sometimes try to get away with just being nice enough? Let's just be kind enough to get them in the door. Paul says Jesus didn't do that either. It says he poured out his kindness, his love. He poured it out generously. He shows us again. Look in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. He writes to the Romans and says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his what? The riches of his kindness forbearance, and patience. 
You see, patience and kindness go hand in hand so many times in the scriptures. Do you, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In the verses right before this, Paul is basically asking the church, why do you pour judgment out on people who are doing the very same things that you're doing? And why is it that you expect that judgment to bring them to repentance? Because that's not the case with you. It was the kindness of God that drew you to repentance. But it's kindness rooted in truth. That leads sinners to repentance. So, so don't get the wrong idea. We don't compromise truth at all. We don't renege on our, our stand on what scripture says is sin. Because that's not kind either. If we paint a false picture of the righteousness of God. Then we're not being kind in that either but the kindness of truth with the love of agape put together will bring sinners to repentance there's a lady named rosaria butterfield you've probably never heard of her but she's the author of the book the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert an english professor's journey into the Christian faith. And in this book, she tells about her transformation from a postmodern, lesbian, PhD, English professor to the wife of a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and homeschooling mom. And in this book, she tells her story And Butterfield says that as a non-Christian, her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. And after publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local newspaper, she received an enormous volume of polarizing responses. And so she placed an empty box at both corners of her desk. And all of the mail that she received in response to this article that she had written in the newspaper, she would sort the mail by putting hate mail in one box and putting fan mail in the other. And she writes in her book and says that one day she received a response from a local pastor. It was two pages long. And she says in her book, it was a kind and inquiring letter. See, the letter had warmth and civility in it, in addition to its probing questions. And she couldn't figure out, after she read the letter, which box to put it in. So it sat on her desk for a week because she couldn't figure out what to do with it. She says, quote, it was the kindest letter of opposition 
that I had ever received. And the tone demonstrated that this pastor was for me and not against me. Eventually, he contacted the, she contacted the pastor, became friends with he and his wife. And their friendship became an important key in her coming to faith in Christ. And listen to what she says about her friendship with this pastor and his wife. They talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. They talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. I wonder how many people over the years the church has erased with its words. Church, I want to say to you this morning that agape will become real in our lives when we begin to actively endure the suffering that others bring into our lives without chasing after vengeance. That has to do with our relationships with people outside this church. It has to do with our relationships with people inside this church. To willingly suffer hurt every once in a while because it will come. And to not give up on each other. And then it will rise as we seek to pour good things into the lives of the same people who bring us hurt. Not for our self-edification, but because there is a supernatural desire in us to see them experience things that are good. God the Father is patient, and He endures the suffering of our rejection and our sin, and our intentional choices to turn our back on him. And he still pursues us with a kindness that we don't deserve. So the question, lots of questions I want you to ponder this morning. Who is Jesus calling you to suffer for this morning? Who's someone that he's calling you to continue to endure where you're almost ready to just quit and say, I'm done. Who are you ready to ride off when you walked in the door this morning, but now God has reminded you of the patient love that he's poured out on you, and he's calling you to show that to someone else? Or is there someone that maybe he's placing on your heart right now that maybe for a change could really benefit from seeing the kindness of Christ in a Christian. Maybe they haven't seen that in a Christian in a long time. And he's calling you to be that example. What rights to avenge yourself is he calling you to lay down? And if nothing else, we should consider what has he endured to show us his love.